0: yeah we could ask you about the most mundane artifact like what was your least favorite flake
1: (laughs) it would be in quartz i could tell you
2: that the new brunswick archaeology podcast featuring your hosts gabe Reinick and ken holyoke
0: Brunswick Archaeology Podcast. I'm Gabe Reinick in Fredericton, New Brunswick, and I'm joined as I am every uh, fortnight by Ken Holyoke, who's in Lethbridge, Alberta. How are you, Ken?
2: Not too bad. I am uh, sitting in Studio 598, and it is spring-like in Lethbridge. has been all week. It's been like about 10 to 15 degrees every day. That's Um, fantastic.
0: Does that mean your garden has come back yet again?
2: Yep. So actually, but no joke, the grass (laughs) has like a patch of green in it, which is, which is pretty strange. So, yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. I haven't checked the parsley yet, but it might be, it might That's... be regenerating. <laughs> That's what I was wondering.
0: <laughs> the, uh, and our sponsors this, uh, this fortnight are the Association of Professional Archaeologists of New Brunswick, Uleth Oris, and the Shirk Exchange Program. And we'd, we'd like to thank them for all of their support of this pod. And one of the things that the Uleth Oris Program has enabled us to do is uh, starting next fortnight, we're going to have a producer.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. We will be joined by Emmanuel, um, who uh, is going to be acting in a producing context. You might hear Emmanuel's voice every once in a while during the episode. Um, if uh, if we we screw something up or he... Uh, <laughs> he or maybe he if he screws it.
0: something up and his voice cuts in.
2: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so Emmanuel will be helping us out with this stuff. Um, I don't know if you'll notice an immediate... Uh, increase in the quality of the audio, but I think it's entirely possible you will. Um uh the the folks that we interviewed for the position um were discussing podcasting recording software that I don't think either you or I had ever even heard of. Um, that's right. Uh, they do not use ClipChamp apparently <laughs> that's it that they're not using <laughs> they're not using direct from Zoom single wave files or Clipchamp, which is uh um, uh, I cannot believe that you know that these students who are actually learning how to audio record don't use um, free software. And uh, well, man- I feel
0: like this is the critique, you know, that it's always the is university really preparing you for real life if you're not, uh, you know, sitting in your home office using Clipchamp to uh,
2: to produce the New Brunswick Archaeology podcast. Exactly. If you if you've seen the a uh, few YouTube videos and hit Google a few times on how do I eliminate this noise uh you know I mean what what's a what's comprehensive training in a four-year program gonna compare to that?
0: Yeah exactly but uh, but don't worry my understanding is Ken in, in Alberta uh programs like that will be first up against the wall come the revolution
2: so <laughs> uh, yeah okay. yeah well uh, it's been a it's been a heck of a week here. Um yeah. yeah so so and actually one of the things that might happen is uh so Emmanuel has access to there's actually a recording stu- a podcast recording studio um, or just a maybe a regular recording studio that he said he records in um, on campus, and so I may actually have an opportunity to actually go in a studio to record a podcast at some point, which would I think would be pretty neat, actually.
0: Yeah, I kept I keep thinking about doing that here, and then it's really been two things that have prevented me. The first one being that you have to plan ahead enough to reserve it, and the second one being that I think it's a couvassier free zone. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so I, I've uh, tended not to uh, not to do that. But yeah. speaking of places that are uh, that are uh, not Covasier free zones um
2: we have an exciting live event coming up Ken that's right so uh February 20th the we are going to be having an evening of New Brunswick archaeology featuring um myself I'm going to do a (laughs) yeah featuring Dave and I but uh uh, me twice actually so so and what are you lecturing on Ken have you have you decided yet uh probably just uh some history of archaeology in the lower Willastoke and uh some Fantastic. of my research and how that time it ties in. So okay. um we haven't done a kind of a big public lecture for some time. Um and uh um I think that the folks that would be in attendance for this one will kind of keep it a little bit more general. Um uh, as you know, I'm uh I tend to get into the weeds a little bit, uh, yeah. uh sometimes so- when I give a talk. Sorry, the one <laughs> uh so february 20th which is a tuesday evening between 6 and 9 p.m at pick roundhouse uh, on union drive in fredericton right near the end of the uh, train bridge um and uh the so between so we'll have kind of a reception thing to start the public talk runs from 6 30 to 7 30 so it's about a probably 45 minute talk with some question and answer period afterwards we'll have a short intermission while gabe and i get um some equipment set up and get our kind of audio tests done and then we're going to do a live podcast between 8 and eight forty-five p.m um so the folks at Pickaroon's and uh cafe or is it pub 540 oh i always forget and there's also a coffee shop over there
0: although the coffee shop may be closed in the evening um uh
2: yeah uh, 540 bistro that's what it is 540 yeah, north yeah. is actually i think what their what their outfit at the roundhouse is called Um, but the talk is going to be, and the podcast is going to be in the Riverside room area, which is sort of the part facing the river. You can learn Um, about the lower,
0: uh, while facing the
2: lower Lestec. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. And, uh, so anybody who's interested, we welcome you to come out. Uh, should be a fun evening. Um, and, uh, the kitchen's going to be open, uh, and beer will be on tap. And, uh, so yeah, so we, we welcome you to come out. It'd be great to see some people, maybe meet, meet some of, uh, some of our listeners. Um, and, uh. Uh, kind of share a fun evening together. That's right. I think there's going to be some. Uh, it sounds like there's going to be some prize draws as well. Yeah, yeah. I have, hey. I, I from the incredibly generous uh, promotional team here at University of Lethbridge, uh, I've uh, I've got uh, some pretty cool ULETH stuff to bring out.
0: That's right. Go pronghorns,
2: and we'll probably Go have some pronghorns. UNB stuff. And I and there's rumors, I believe, of some EcoForce swag too. And some EcoForce swag as well. So there, it will be an evening filled with prizes, um, and archaeology. That's great. And I think
0: um people should see some posters around the university and around town here in Fredericton. So uh we'd also like to thank the folks at Pickaroons who are uh letting us use their space uh gratis. So um yeah, totally we encourage you to buy a beer or your favorite non-alcoholic tipple and uh and uh and turn on out. But the it's possible, Ken, that that there could be another big exciting announcement um coming up, which would be that you know, someday we may have a new um uh a new name for this podcast right now we're called the new brunswick archaeology podcast and that's what we've been called all along but it's possible that name doesn't have quite the pizzazz that is accompanying this new i mean we're gonna have a producer now right and we've still got this, this sort of mundane name and so um we've got an exciting prize here for for somebody who might write in with that new name and can if if they were to have a, a replacement name for
2: the new brunswick archaeology podcast where would they email that name to they would email it to New Brunswick Archaeology, all one word, uh, New Brunswick Archaeology at gmail.com, archaeology spelt A R C H A E O L O G Y, New Brunswick Archaeology at gmail.com. That's right. And so, Ken, um, we're going to be introducing a new kind of show
0: that we're doing today. But one of the things that we're going to be talking about in that show, in our inaugural Great uh, Sites episode of the uh, New Brunswick Archaeology podcast, is we're going to be talking a little bit about bridges. That's right. And so, Ken, um, a lot of archaeologists spend so much time thinking about the bottoms of bridges that they never actually pause and ponder other aspects of bridges, like the tops of them. Um, and so what we've got coming up here, Ken... So, just, just a second, though. The bottoms of the bridges, what are, what are we talking Like the Like the footings? Well, the footings, but also if you're working under them, you're always looking up at the underside of the bridge.
2: That's very true. Okay. Well, there, I mean, there
0: was also the economic downturn when there were some archaeologists living under bridges, but... Those days are behind us with the current uh, the current uh, job market.
2: Exactly. The,
0: uh, yeah, I mean, we've got archaeologists just buying their own bridges now. Exactly. Just to go out and drive their fancy cars on. But, um, Ken, as you know, um, uh, one of my favorite states in the Union is uh, is West Virginia. And, and right. unlike its neighbor, uh, Ohio, West Virginia is quite a beautiful state. And the people there are pretty nice, too. Um, it's got country roads, the Blue Ridge Mountains, the Shenandoah River. But uh, how do you feel about heights, Ken?
2: Uh, I do not like them. I uh, um, it's it's something I tend to get vertigo if I'm uh, if I'm too close to the edge. Oh, interesting. OK, so so it's possible
0: you won't be accompanying our uh, guest on this particular prize, but we'll go out with them and we'll enjoy most of the parts of this. But one of the things that West Virginia is, is home to is a particularly gorgeous national park. That's right. Gorgeous. New River Gorge. In addition to its natural features, it's home to an impressive piece of engineering that you need to get across the gorge, and that's on U.S. Route 19. That is a steel arch bridge that spans 1,700 feet, that's nine parsecs, and is 876 <laughs> feet, or 93 furlongs, um, high. It's the fifth longest single arch bridge in the world, the 23 highest automobile bridge, and it's the fourth highest uh, in the Americas. And it, it really is impressive uh, scenery uh, when you drive across that bridge, I should let you know. But um, what happens this October, like it does every October, is that you, lucky listener, could be joining us at Bridge Day. Once a year, they close the bridge. And let me just read from their website here. Bridge Day is West Virginia's largest single-day festival, and it's one of the largest extreme sports events in the world. Held annually every third Saturday in October on the New River Gorge Bridge in Fayette County, West Virginia, this is the only day each year thousands of spectators can walk across the bridge and watch as serious base jumpers get their chance to fly 876 feet into the gorge below and rappellers descend and descend from the catwalk. Come and enjoy the view from the bridge, one of the best overlooks in the New River Gorge. That's right, listener, base jumping. Uh, In a New Brunswick Archaeology podcast-branded, Hey Duke 2 parachute with rear cord float flaps, center pan slats, expanding into cross-porting, transversal shaping, and an ellipse ZP nose. And so, Ken, what you may be wondering right now is, is it safe? Are you wondering that? Uh,
2: uh Yeah. Well, so I, I have a funny story about base jumping that I'll tell after this that, okay. uh, that I, I I know it's not safe. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. No, it's, it's it's in fact,
0: it's remarkably dangerous because it's jumping 900 feet off a bridge into a river with a parachute that <laughs> apparently looks like a postage stamp as you jump. Um, and uh, the, the statistic on this apparently is there's about a one in 2000 chance per jump of dying. Which... I've, I've heard higher actually. Oh, it's... interesting. <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: Yeah. But uh, Montani Semper Liberia, as we West Virginia enthusiasts like to say, um, and Fayetteville is a pretty hip little town with some pretty exciting food options, which Ken and I will also be touring you around to um, around the time of your base jump. And so for breakfast, we're going to hit Tudor's biscuit world for the thundering herd sausage, potato, egg and cheese sandwich paired with an ice cold Mountain Dew. Uh, and to celebrate your landing for lunch, <laughs> Ken and I are going to whip up some pepperoni rolls. That's the state food of West Virginia. And we'll meet you at the bottom of the bridge with some of those and with an ice-cold Mountain Dew Baja Blast. And then for dinner, we're going to head over to Pies and Pints for some pizza skins, the mushroom garlic pizza, and an ice-cold pitcher of Mountain Dew Code Red. And then for a nightcap, what we're going to do is we're going to take you over to Free Folk Brewing, which is really delicious, um, for some of their flagship brews, including Trucker Speed Imperial IPA, Soul Sister Sour Fruited Goza or Allegheny Alligator Chocolate Chili Stout. Each of these are going to actually pair really, really well with an ice-cold Mountain Dew Major Melon Chaser. So that's right, listener. <laughs> the sound you hear just might be her voice in the morning hour calling you. That's right, you, Mountain Mama, calling you home to the place you belong. And so, Ken, if the lucky listener would like to go uh, do a little bass jumping at the New River Gorge, where would they send the new name for the New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast?
2: They would send it to New Brunswick Archaeology at gmail.com. New Brunswick Archaeology, all one word. Archaeology spelled A-R-C-H-A-E-O-L-O-G-Y. New Brunswick Archaeology at gmail.com.
0: All right. And before we turn to that mailbox, Ken, uh, you have a story about base jumping you'd like to share?
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we went up <laughs> for dinner on Saturday with some friends of ours. And I found out that one of my colleagues who he's a, a, a faculty, uh, he's sort of cross-appointed between kinesiology and sociology. Um, but, uh, in a previous life, he did <laughs> just fit enough to jump, just crazy enough to do it. <laughs> well, so, so what's interesting is apparently he did some ethnographic studies with base jumpers and so was a base jumper at one time. Oh wow. And he said that the average lifespan of a base jumper after they start base jumping is six years. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> what a what a sport <laughs> what a sport yeah yeah, yeah. Right. and on but... the topic of bridges uh uh we're in uh you know in lethbridge we have the 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 lethbridge viaduct sort of a famous bridge in canada because it's the it's the largest railway structure in canada it's like over like over a kilometer and a half long and almost 100 meters high it's like this big steel trestle bridge
0: oh wow uh, that, goes so... over
2: the, that goes over the it goes over the uh over the coulee it's actually quite pretty so longest hallway in
0: canada longest train bridge in canada is there anything that left bridge doesn't have
2: yeah yeah exactly what does not it have <laughs> all um, right so
0: um so ken uh what is the uh, address the uh email box you're about to look in
2: yeah so it's New Brunswick Archaeology at com. uh we've got our usual how do you spell uh, that s- uh <laughs> Uh, New Brunswick archaeology, all one word. Archaeology spelled A R C H A E O L G O G Y. If you missed Thank it you. the first couple of times, New Brunswick archaeology at gmail.com. Uh, so we got our usual Podcorn um, uh, emails. Actually, this time it's Madison at pop, Podcorn. Uh, so they've actually put a name on it um, mm-hmm. to see if we can we get roped in. Um, some terms and services stuff we got to agree, and then we have an email from our friend uh, Ricky or Rick, and he says, "Gents." Just a couple of thoughts about coastal erosion and artifacts. My wife and I hike and kayak in much of New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, Northeast Maine. A lot of trails we hike are along coastal areas that David Black describes in his film titled Coastal Erosion and Archaeological History in Charlotte County. Maybe we'll put that in the show notes. That's a YouTube video recorded for the APA and B a few years ago. Uh, Maybe engaging hiking or kayaking groups would be a good source of information about these areas. Some of the people I've met over the years have been walking the same trails for decades. We've never found an artifact, but I know a lot of people who have found artifacts who are hikers. With that being said, I've recently listened to your podcast titled Giving Artifacts a Future. Do any of the collectors have public displays? Where can the public see artifacts? When you ask Google where to view Aboriginal artifacts in New Brunswick, it opens discouraging content. I have met a few people in the past that have artifacts, one person being a relative of someone from Aquapit Lake in New Brunswick. I'm glad these people trusted me enough to let them examine them. I've tried to convince them to donate the artifacts or at least have someone look at them. I could only tell them that they were indeed pointy rocks. The response is the same every time. They want to keep them to show people. If they give them to the museum, there's a good chance they'll never be seen by the public. It's too bad New Brunswick doesn't have a place to display artifacts like a museum. I think this is quite the conundrum. This is an archaeological cri- There is an archaeological crisis happening due to coastal erosion, and you could really use the public's help in reporting what they find. People will be interested if they're included. I think this podcast is a good start on including the public and archaeological findings in the area. Dr. Black had a really good idea about the bird sighting app. app. Uh, thanks for the podcast, guys. It appears you've found your rhythm. Before long, you'll have 10,000 listeners drinking margaritas and thinking of a name for your podcast. Uh, thanks, Rick. So well, thank, thank you very much for that. Thanks for that. And uh, and thank you for the kind of the, um, uh, you know, the interesting perspective on this. Like, I mean, this is part of the reason why we wanted to highlight the relationship between mm-hmm. um, professionals and collectors and sort of highlight some of the challenges in New Brunswick about accessing um, archaeological materials and, and being able to engage with that uh, as a member of the public. And so, you know, uh, you are right. There is, uh, right now, there is no sort of, dedicated museum that uh, has a display for um, uh, New Brunswick Archaeological Past. Uh, although the Fredericton uh, Regional region. Museum, is that?
0: Yep. Yeah, uh, Region
2: Museum. Fredericton and Region Museum, isn't
0: it? Uh, uh, Fredericton, just it's just Fredericton Region, I believe.
2: Yeah, okay. And they yeah, they yeah. have a permanent exhibit um, which has a display of Velosticoke artifacts, if I remember right. correctly. Yep. Um, and there, so there are a few community museums where you can find this stuff, but you're right. There is... Um, there's a challenge, you know, and as Dave pointed out in the episode that you're talking about, even when those objects are uh, uh, private collections are donated, uh, museums uh, tend to not have the capacity to display them. Uh, those collections full time, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's just the nature of in a museum you have rotating. Collections and that sort of thing, and you have more things than you're able to display, and so there's no real elegant solution to this. And you know, on top of it, you have a curation crisis, right? So um, even when museums are taking in collections or have the cap, they they sometimes rarely have the capacity to take on collections, uh, and it can be uh, some time before they're even able to process that sort of stuff. And so, um, no, it's it's uh, it's we're highlighting an issue that we don't really have a good answer for. No, that's um, I right. Think is- is part of the, And part of the point was to just bring it to the attention of a, a broader public to maybe generate discussions about um, what's a way that we can address this. And, and I think it would involve engaging uh, Indigenous communities, um, as well as resident communities and collectors and also the public and what the public and, and these various communities would like to see and, and how do you make this a system that's a little bit more um, accountable and also a little bit more accessible to, to everyone who's interested in the past. I think that's right and we really appreciate your uh, perspective
0: on that Rick. You highlight a whole bunch of, uh, of really important points that uh, we think the listener uh, needs to hear. So thank you very much and uh, we appreciate the uh, being in touch. We always enjoy getting the getting the emails.
2: Yeah, yeah and and Rick you can your your stickers are actually in the mail. So that they, <laughs> maybe by the time this episode is posted you'll be uh, you'll be uh, uh, enjoying the, very, the variety of stickers that I put in there. I, I think I gave a couple extras cuz I, oh, I good. was long Long remiss, so and uh, they'll look great on your um on your margarita mug. Exactly, exactly. Anything else in that mailbox, Ken? Uh, no, there is not. That's uh, that's it for this week. Uh, All right. Yeah. And so, so Ken, go ahead. We're we're quite excited because we're trying
0: something new this week, which is that um we thought it would be um good. We realize that many of the reasons that a listener tunes into um. This podcast is because they like archaeology, just like we do. Yeah, um, yeah. We we like policy, we like ethical issues. Um, we like the the feeling of uh, of of self flagellation that comes with talking about pseudo archaeology. We like all of those things. Um, but but we don't think it all needs to be vegetables here. Uh, sometimes we're gonna go for uh for dessert. And exactly. so our um our new series here is gonna be called
2: Great Sites. And yeah. uh, what are our goals with this, Ken? So uh, like the intrusive feature, um, which is is kind of when we're steering away from the regular programming, you know, interviewing people at conferences and that sort of thing, we want to highlight particular aspects of archaeology that we think are not always accessible to the public. Um, one of the things that isn't always super accessible are sort of deep descriptions of archaeological sites, right? And so um, in this case, it's we're going to talk about archaeology itself and dive a bit deeper into the incredibly important and very interesting sites in New Brunswick. We've got a few that we're interested in and probably other parts of the Maritimes in Maine. You and I might talk about some uh, digs that we've been on and that kind of mm-hmm. thing. And so we're going to integrate sort of our regular programming with some kind of exciting chats just about Um, really interesting pieces of the past and and what we'll also probably be doing is linking back to previous episodes um, where we talk about these particular sites so that you have an opportunity to kind of contextualize the site itself in the broader culture history of New Brunswick that we covered in the first season of the show. That's right. So if you're tuning in uh, for some reason to this episode,
0: and this is your first time with the New Brunswick Archaeology podcast, um, the best place to start is actually not the first episode we ever did. It's the second <laughs> episode we ever did. And I think, Ken, the way we would encourage people to do is just pretend the first episode doesn't exist because uh, we didn't know what we're doing. We still don't really know what we're doing, but we really didn't know what we we're doing then. Yeah. Uh, start at the second episode, work your way through the first season, and then um I think one way you could do it is you could really, once you've done the first season, you can kind of dip in and out of the second season, you can really take that in almost whatever order you want.
2: Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, in the second season, we have a couple of episodes that are sort of in a, like a two part thing. So we've got a two part thing on pseudo archaeology, we've got a two part thing on on professional collector relationships. Um, so you you, those are pretty easy to pick up because of the titles but yeah certainly any of the episodes that are in the second season are a little bit more you can bounce in and bounce out whereas the the uh so it's the two approaches to kind of the uh, so the first season is really a serial uh format (laughs) Uh, and then the second one is more of a um uh, what do they call um like shows like true detective what's it uh well, I'm not sure. Is it a, a, a documentary? anthology? The oh, second, an anthology. second is an anthology style. Okay. series. second. Season, that's yeah, great. So
0: yeah, but AMP being all capital letters to emphasize it. Oh yeah, a, yeah. Uh, there yeah. you go.
2: There's even a pun in there. I love yeah, that. exactly. So, yeah. yeah.
0: The um. All right. So um. So I think Ken, we um.
2: That's what we're gonna do this episode, and uh, we welcome feedback from the listener on how they like it. Yeah, so uh, we hope you enjoy the first Great Sites episode about the Gemsake Crossing archaeological site, BKDM14. That's right. I think we'll let our guest in and we'll cite you in a minute, listener. Okay, welcome back, guests. And we have our uh, our guest, esteemed guest today, Dr. Susan Blair at the University of New Brunswick. Hello, Sue. Thank you for coming on. Thank you, Hi, uh, Sue. <laughs> so, uh, Dr. Blair is an expert in Maritime Peninsula and Wabanaki Archaeology and has worked in New Brunswick for much of her professional career, including working in the private sector, public sector, and academic settings. During her undergraduate degree, she began working a working relationship with the New Brunswick Provincial Archaeology Services Unit. She conducted research on pre-contact archaeology the Grand Manan Archipelago, completing her master's degree at UNB in 1997. Following this project, she undertook the direction of the Jemse Crossing Archaeological Project, Lo and behold, as we've teased, this is the part of this is the reason we we're talking to Sue today. Uh, and this is the largest archaeological mitigation project in Canada, uh, significantly to her doctoral research at the University of Toronto, which examined fine grain changes in settlement and technology in ancestral Wallostockwick sites in the Lower St. John River or Lower Wallostock. She has co-authored a volume on the archaeology of the Atlantic region and published several volumes on the pre-contact archaeology of New Brunswick. And she has published in the Journal of Anthropological Archaeology and the Journal of Field Archaeology. So welcome to the show, Sue. It's uh, you know, and and a, a, on top of all of this, Sue is uh, a mentor of mine, um, and because uh, part of the reason I know so much about Lower Wolastoq archaeology is because I've I've been under the tutelage of Sue for many years uh, and a coworker. <laughs> uh, and, uh, a departmental colleague with Gabe. And we yeah. should say at the outset that we really appreciate Sue coming on to talk with us
0: about Gemseg because usually she prefers to do this with Peter Zosky, but, um, <laughs> he wasn't available today, so, uh, so she got us instead.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> the, uh, so, Sue, so, for, um, for the uninitiated, uninitiated about this project, could you provide just some of the background to the Gemseg project? And I think, um, Chris Turnbull called it the road to Gemseg,
1: Right. Um, so Jim, the Gem's Egg Crossing project was one that sort of came about in 1996 as a result of the Fredericton to Moncton Highway project. So at that time, there was this uh, decision that the highway, which at the time traveled along the, the Wollastook, like in right next to the river where winds would blow on to the road in the winter and kids would be waiting by the side of the highway as tractor trailers would you know tr- trundle by it was a really bad uh routing of the trans canada and so the decision to reroute it was widely you know thought to be reasonable um of the number of uh paths that were examined the end decision was made to have it travel uh across the grand lake meadows entering, well, I suppose, the, depending on the direction you're coming, but if you're coming from Moncton, entering into it at Gemseg, traveling along the the, the meadows and then crossing at Coytown, Town. Um, and so so this work had been, um, be, there had been previous highway work kind of in the area. And in fact, the, the Gemseg site was already owned by the Department of Transportation because they were using it as a place to to dump fill from previous highway work. And so this particular routing and the approach of the bridge was because they had already had double-laned highway leading up to this. So this, they'd done the work that it had been twinned. There was an old bridge that the high, that the highway sort of curved around and went over. And what they wanted to do was straighten that out and build a modern bridge. So, um, so there was uh, archaeological... Survey work that was undertaken by Washburn and Gillis, which was a consulting company at the time. It's now being morphed over through numerous iterations. I think it's now—I'm not even sure what the name of it is. It's a set of initials, I think. Wood was what it was most recently. Oh, WSP, I believe. WSP, WSP, yeah. yeah. (laughs) So um, uh, they had that that survey, and this was really early days for CRM. So we there wasn't really. a lot of sort of development of best practices in the sense that, I mean, at that point, the, the, the survey only required a 25 meter testing interval and with shovels. So that the effect of that was a very wide testing interval meant it was much more likely to miss something. And the depth of the tests was like, you know, 50, 60, 70 centimeters tops. Uh, And it, and it, found that there was a potential for some archaeological material there it was based on that testing the analysis was that it was likely to be shallow recent distributed and so I was approached about working on this project in the summer of 1996 with the idea that it would be you know 10 weeks of field work for like 8 to 10 people <laughs> we would be we would and it would but it this was you know this was august so we were starting we actually started on the project august 26th so very late in the day um that project was the first project that happened in in the Willamette uh drainage um since a really controversial and difficult project that had happened at St. Anne's Point here in Fredericton that had resulted in a tremendous amount of bad feeling between willis and archaeologists, uh, a, la- a real lack of trust based on that project. Um, and and I think that, f- that context framed the approach that the province wanted to take to GEMSEG, and in particular, Chris Turnbull wanted to take to GEMSEG, which may be a little bit what he's alluding to in the road to GEMSEG, which was to really rethink how we were doing um, archaeology to build a lot of consultation into it, <clears throat> and to be uh, open to rethinking how we did work. It 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 is also interesting that it was there was already a CRM industry, and so this the, this decision was made to take this project and do it in house, and that also was not without controversy, right? Like, right, a lot of the consulting companies were why why are our companies not doing that work, right? Um, And the reason was, was because of this political and the lack of trust and the concerns of communities that um, it was felt that if that wasn't built into the project, then the project would not be successful. And that the way to build that into it was to really have it um, outside of the CRM system, not, not because you really, you wouldn't be able to control timelines, for example, as easily and all those kinds of things. So, so that was kind of the road that got us to there. Um, and it was, so it was August 26th and I blithely walked down on site and looked at, you know, scurrying snakes and frogs and thought, oh, well, this is really kind of sad. Cause this beautiful green place, um, you know, nice thing to do in the fall. I'll be out of here by end of October.
2: <laughs> A little bit of cash no in problem. your pocket, you know, bit, yeah. Like, yeah. I, I
1: was, I actually put off going to do my PhD. So I was supposed to start my PhD that fall but I had just had a baby six weeks earlier. So this seemed like a great print to leave. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so um, so uh, you you kind of um, touched on a few things here. So the first thing is the listener will hear that this was a CRM project. These are sort of early days in CRM. Um, <clears throat> in New Brunswick in particular, um, we've talked, like we talked uh, in a previous episode about sort of the evolution of the industry kind of coming in on the heels of the Clean Environment Act. So this is, this work is being undertaken as part of an environmental assessment. Um, but you talked about, and 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 sort of one of the legacies of the GEMSEG project is sort of how innovative this collaborative approach was, right? And so, um, and what you're talking about too is that the approach to sort of this road to GEMSEG, this approach to even going into a CRM project was thinking about collaboration right from the get-go, right? And this is before, you guys had really even gone in and done sort of comprehensive testing or anything, right? Like th- yep. this is before, you know, shovels are in the ground and recognizing that there's actually much more here than, than was originally thought. And so how did this collaborative site of the project sort of evolve? Um, who was involved with it? You kind of mentioned a couple of, of important people here. So Chris Turnbull, who's the, um, uh, who was the provincial archaeologist at the time and, and was New Brunswick's first provincial archaeologist. Um, And why was it so important uh, to do it this way? You'd mentioned that, you know, like, kind of the background to that. um, But uh, how did that kind of translate in the field to how things played out?
1: Yeah, so, and I will say that, um, you know, collaborative archaeology has become a very uh, widely applied approach. And in my view, what Chris Turnbull and Pat Allen and others were doing at our services in the seventies and eighties. Seventies with Metapanagia. and then leading up to this project, really was considering collaboration far more wholesomely than many others were doing at the time. They were re- this was really innovative on the part of the provincial archaeologist at the time, and so I think a lot of credit goes to Chris for this. Um, but the way that we uh, what so when I was brought onto the project, the first thing that Chris said was, "We're going to have a management team." We're not having like normally um, at the time an archaeologist would be the lead person and that would be the director and that would be the full decision maker. We decided to go with a team that consisted of me, Karen Purley from Nagutkuk, who would be working on community liaison and would be uh, sort of education and like thinking about the sort of public outreach component of this. And then Patrick Polchis from Kingsclear or Pilich, uh, who would be involved in... Um, sort of managing the the money and the hiring and the sort of the kind of logistics. He would be the logistics expert and I would be the archaeological director. And so the three of us worked very closely um, throughout it as a team. We also wanted to have a connection to the community that was operating at a grass, grassroots level. So we wanted to really um, involve people in the community who were activists and were connected to um, sort of traditional ways of of looking at things. So a committee was put together, the Maliseet Advisory on Com- the Maliseet Advisory Committee on Archaeology, which yeah. lived on after the project for quite a while and was a a key body around building um, sort of capacity for communication between archaeologists and Indigenous people. Um, and so uh, that committee was created and involved. People from each community. Very early on, it was people that uh, were picked because they had some sort of connection to heritage and education, and it was felt right away we ran into some conflict around that because it was felt that that was cutting out the chiefs, that there was that it was they were handpicked, and right. so. We immediately went back and talked to the chiefs about that, and the chiefs then appointed pretty much the same people. So we ended up with the same committee, but we did go through this process that I think gave a lot more sort of respect to the existing structures and decision-making frameworks. Um, And so that committee was really important. It it really was a key part of the governance of the project. And we met with that committee regularly. Every time there was an issue that came up, we would meet with MACA and uh, have a discussion some of those meetings were open meetings and community members would go to them some of them were really intense as a consequence um the uh but always always helpful and always informative and that often involved the, the the management team but also there were people who we were working with on the department of transportation side so at this time archaeological services was in municipalities culture and housing and the project was also influenced by the Department of Transportation. So we had transport Department of Transportation engineers who were leading the, the the engineering part of it who were also coming to those meetings. And so there was a really full engagement of different parties in this process. It that that philosophy of engagement and governance carried down through the project. So in the actual field, we ended up having a lot of people from Willistogate communities working with the project. Um and at, at most times between 70 and 80% of our crew were Willistowiak. And so uh, those one of the things that I really felt needed to be changed was a model where you had in non-Indigenous archaeological people bossing around. <laughs> and yeah. telling them where to dig. And so what I very quickly realized is that on our crew, we had people who had tremendous skills and insights. We had some people who had had a lifetime of work already doing all sorts of things in the trades and school systems and all sorts of things. And many of those skills were quite transferable. So what, in, what we ended up doing was even at the level of excavation teams. So we had teams that consisted of, of two leads, a community lead and a, an archaeologically trained lead, and then we would have four or five people working for those two, and those that would be sort of a partnership. And the goal would be to have all of the people involved in it become um, gain skill and expertise at the level of also decision making and and building that capacity right in the project. Um, we also had. Uh, Um, because Karen really correctly pointed out that a big part of this also needed to be transparency and making all of this information available. We had an open policy for people. So we always had sort of like, you know, folding chairs around so that elders could come and sit and watch us dig. People could be on site. We actually did have quite a bit of, there were protests that happened at various points. um, And at one point there was a sweat lodge set up on site. All of that was fine. You know, people needed to feel comfortable to express, Um, their concerns, but also they needed to know that they could come and watch what we were doing and that our biggest asset was having members from communities on the crew who could talk about what they were doing in their communities. Um, And so uh, Karen um, also created an interpretation center on site that was open to the public and we reached out to the Department of Education and we had I I can't remember the numbers, thousands of school kids come through on school tours. And in those school tours, Karen would tell traditional stories. She would show them, she would demonstrate smudging. And then uh, we had Ramona Nicholas who would do some basket weaving with them. And then they would go down and talk to archaeologists on site. Then they would come up and see people working in the lab. So we had this whole sort of experiential um, process for school kids to come through, and, and literally thousands of, of kids, school kids from New Brunswick went through the site. So, the collaborative side is was sort of fundamental to the way we were doing it, but it kind of permeated it in all sorts of interesting ways. And uh, as I said, it didn't forestall or eliminate controversy. People still, I mean, t- building trust takes years and years, and people had had that very bad experience previously with archaeologists, and were reasonably skeptical. And I think there was also a lot of concern about the fact that this was going to be impacting on the meadows, which is an environmental area. So there was a concern about the project was always simmering there. We were largely left to deal with this, there wasn't a a big presence of government preventing us from communicating in media or with the community until late in the project. And so I think the reason Gabe mentioned Peter Zosky is we did have quite a bit of media attention. There (laughs) were political cartoons made about the site. There were a lot of interviews, all that kind of thing as the project unwind uh, went forward. At a certain point, the concerns about the the project came to a head and we decided that continuing to do the work without addressing those was just going to create conflict. So in early November, we just stopped. We stopped work for like a month and we went, uh, Karen and Pat and I went and talked to people in the communities, Pat Polchis, and we we really listened and tried to understand the concerns. And what we kept hearing was this fear that we were excavating burials. That was a real concern. And I think that really came from the experience at St. Anne's Point, but it's also a concern that people have for the respectful treatment of their ancestors. And so uh, we had a letter written by the premier. Well, I think someone wrote it for the premier, but the premier signed it saying that the project would not impact on burials. And if a burial site was found, that there would be a a reconsideration of the project. And I think that gave some confidence, having this document that was signed gave some confidence to the chiefs and they uh, ended up supporting the project and we were able to move ahead. But that was, by then, we were into like, December <laughs> and <laughs> and we're starting the project in earnest at that point. So, already you can tell we didn't uh, have a shallow, simple site that we were dealing with. By then, we knew we were in it for the long haul. Yeah. yeah so, I think I, what I
0: just, Sue just did is what archaeologists call foreshadowing, I think. Yeah.
2: I did want to pick up on something you. Uh, so, uh, before we get into the archaeology stuff, and, and just to kind of before we leave the uh, sort of the project itself, I guess one of the things I'm kind of interested in, like what you're describing, is sort of sounds like the way archaeology should be done, right? And and I think is kind of an ideal model for CRM. And and I think that we probably haven't seen anything even really close to what happened at James, Gemseg. And, and I wonder, you know, is this um, kind of a failing on the archaeology side? Was it that, um, was it some of the political outcomes of the project? Um, is it just that we really haven't actually seen? sort of that scale of excavation, uh, since that time, yeah. or, or, you know, and, so and is it, how possible? long is, is our it po- podcast? <laughs> <laughs> like, is it, is it possible to do a project in this kind of way? Um, and like, as somebody who worked in CRM for a number of years, like we, you know, we Ramona and I got to, uh, her and Trevor kind of developed, um, uh, uh sort of a collaborative approach to the TransCanada Pipeline Project. Um, where it was sort of co, uh, you know, Ramona and I were co-permittees. Like everything was being made in decision together, and and you know, crews were uh, primarily Blastoquig and and uh, uh, you know, and the Stantec crew, and so we worked together and kind of made decision making together. But it wasn't really kind of in this, and and I think some of it has to do with you said that you guys actually had quite a considerable flexibility in how the decision making process, and Fewer and that's a changed. Point.
1: To a, point. to a point. And I yeah. think that changed during the project. I think that, and I think the answer to that is complicated. I think that you had a transition that happened in governments that, you know, in the 70s and 80s, whatever you might feel about governments at the time, the function of a civil service was to provide expert ad- advice. And governments would, across the board, hire technical experts. So Chris Turnbull was a PhD in archaeology. There were lots of departments that were headed up by people who had that technical expertise. And the expectation would be that those people would challenge their government bosses, that they would be independent and they would give good, sound advice on policy. And I think by the time we were getting into the 90s, we were already on the brink of an era when government, when elected governments began to see the civil service advice as sometimes hindering their agenda and therefore there was a move towards the ascendancy of the spin doctor right the somebody right. who could come in and shape a message and and now we're in an air and that just continued. I mean, we saw that under successive federal and provincial governments. It's across the board. We have an environment where evidence is actually quite dangerous. We try to manage it. We try to keep it out of, you know, spin it. And this is this is a real problem for not just CRM archaeology, but for any science or evidence-based decision making. And I think this was a moment where that began to change and and it's sort of, you know, the the project um we got to a point where we suddenly were well, and we don't, we should probably talk a little bit about what we were finding, but the, <laughs> the, even more foreshadowing, what we ended up finding required, uh, a real, well, it became a sort of a threat to the highway project. And at that point, we stopped being able to say what we wanted to say. That was it, the transition happened in a 24 hour period. Um, and I don't know that we ever went back to that. So whether CRM, and part of it might be that CRM may not be the place where we, we sort of push and create these kinds of models. It's very difficult in that environment where all of the interests are around getting a project done and handling budgets. And there, you it would take regulatory will to do that. And And I think that, governments don't generally have the reg the will to build transparency and decision making into regulations because they don't do it within their own civil service yeah and so i think it's difficult i think that there's a civic problem we have here and until we fix that civic problem if we can it's very difficult for us as archaeologists to enforce it in a sort of a regulatory way oh there may be dogs barking shortly. My daughter's walking
0: in the house. Dogs <laughs> are very popular on this podcast. Don't <laughs> worry. Oh, well, yeah, that's yeah. good. In fact, yeah. we, have a, we, we have a dog that's a follower of the podcast. We do. Oh, really?
1: Really? Yes, yeah. Ruby
0: History Hand. The, yeah, uh,
1: there we go.
0: So that's all super interesting, Sue. And um, and actually, I, that, I hadn't thought about that role of the civil service and, and the ways that that might actually articulate with a lot of other things we've talked about on the show. Like I'm thinking about, you know, public facing aspects of archaeology, research output of these offices and that kind of thing. Um but we have promised the listener we we our, our goal in the intro we mentioned that we're we're trying to provide um, not just vegetables but also some dessert on the on this podcast and so <laughs> um in addition to being uh, politically fraught and to actually help us understand some of the the political challenges better um could you just tell us some things about the site sort of how long yeah. were were people living there um what were they doing there um how big is the site right, Did you so, right- all of right
1: so the, the sensible thing for an archaeologist to do when they're confronted with big fields that are going to be impacted by highways to say, what do we got here? So our first project was to run some test pits along the front of the site and then up the sides. So at that point, we were given 120 meter footprint wide going down and it was 180 meters back to the fill that had been deposited on the site. So, right. there had been this fill that had been deposited on the upper part of the site. And then there was the road bed which would have obliterated anything there. So, Probably 250 meters, but 100, 180 of it that didn't have fill on it. That's and eight it was furlongs
0: for our American yeah, audience. <laughs> right.
1: And it would have been plowed at various points. So there had been various agricultural activities. The, the topography of the site was this high sort of terrace, and then it's sort of a break and slope down to kind of a low wet area, and then kind of a swale or berm down by the water's edge, and then the river. So we started testing along the river. And what we discovered when we put one meter tests in is it was deeply alluvial. Surprise, surprise. And that cultural material started at eight, at 90 centimeters. So those first shovel tests didn't even get down to the cultural layers. Right. Well, so we had and then they, the layers went down from there. So that was a concern because it looked like we had sort of a Fulton Island like kind of stratified site down here by the water. The second pit we put, set of pits we put were back up uh, by the edge of the the terrace or edge of the fill that had been put in on that upper terrace. That first pit produced a groundstone rod. <laughs> <laughs> which and which for so, the listener
2: is is commonly associated with like the early to middle archaic. So we're talking like, you know, nine to kind of seventy five hundred-ish years old.
1: So first which week tends to be of, deeply
2: stratified too. Yeah.
1: The <laughs> yeah, first yeah. week of September. And we realized that the nothing that we thought about this site is going to hold true. It ended up being that every test unit we put in that site produced material. And um, so first, right off the bat, we went back to government and said, look, you know, I think we had already at that point gotten them to reduce the footprint down to. Um, 50 meters. I'm now speaking, I should have looked that up, but a much, the, the footprint was essentially down to the size of the piers. And the way we did that was by talking with engineers about what we could, why do we need this bigger footprint? And their argument was, we need to be able to drive our equipment and the equipment will disturb the deposit. So we said, well, what if we put down layers of geotech and fill and then... We can, you know, you can have your construction on that. And then when that's done, you can remove that and leave the site intact that way. Can we do, can we, re- so we were already troubleshooting to try and make this manageable. And yeah. so we didn't have at that point a pier, um, uh, they didn't know what the piers were going to look like. So they couldn't say the distance between them. So we just had a, a sort of a more narrow kind of uh, yeah. pathway, but we still felt we had to excavate all of that. And then yeah. and we just, these, these and causes, just for the listener-
2: so- so in CRM in general, when we're talking about footprints, because CRM, we, as we talked about on a previous episode, you're not sort of doing archaeology wherever you want to do archaeology, you're doing archaeology within the confines of what the project is designed, the impacts of the project. And so when Sue's talking about the footprint area, what they're trying to do is that this is a bridge project or a hi- associated with a highway project, so what we call a linear corridor. And so these tend to be long and, and somewhat narrow and the engineers like to have a little bit more playroom, like she was saying, a little bit wider of a footprint on that linear corridor in order to account for things like staging areas so where the equipment's going to go, but also for design changes. And so the engineers yeah. want to be able to have room for design changes. And and uh, that will, <laughs> another foreshadowing element is that there are design changes that were required as a result of this. So.
1: Right. Yeah. And we we really were also the ones pushing to, like we didn't want to be excavating over 120 meters. I mean, we probably could have learned a lot more about the site, but at this point, we're we're talking at this point being in late September. The deadline we've been given is is the mid May,
0: which is it's mid May. Maggie May was the one who said it's late September, and I really should be back in school, wasn't it? Yeah, and <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> yeah. this is when
1: we're starting the project, and and Canada this part of Canada has winters, real winters. It gets cold, it freezes, the ground freezes hard and we would get in a normal winter back in that time, you know, a meter or so of snow would be a typical thing. Right. So, um, so this was really, we were really preoccupied with this, uh, this deadline that we had. So we were eager to have, uh, the, the footprint constrained because that would be our ability to achieve that would be possible. Right. So, yep. um, So we ended up having getting them to figure out the peer placements, and we focused our effort on those peers, and and we and of course by then we're into December. So the process that we came up with to excavate this was. To try and heat the site. Initially, we brought straw down to prevent it from freezing. We realized that that just introduced a lot of grain into the site, which is kind of problematic. (laughs) Uh, Somebody came along and lit some of our straw bales on fire as a sort of act of vandalism. That was also problematic. And it wasn't really stopping it from freezing at some point. I think that might have been good to give us a week or two. But we realized we actually had to exca- We had to do something to keep excavating through the winter. So we bought, if you've ever seen those silver garages that you could buy, they're basically a metal frame structure and they've got a silvery tarp that kind of covers them. We bought uh, about a 12 of those. And the, the system we came up with was an excavation team would have t- charge of three of these tents. They would be working in the middle one where they would open two by two meter, units. So we were excavating in two by two meter units, we built. um, And again, we had great crew members who had a lot of experience. Uh, Basil Nash, for example, really had a lot of ideas on how these could look. So we had these frames that were about a foot or 30 centimeters high and a little over two meters square. And we put arrays of 25 heat lamps in them and slapped those on the ground.
2: Whoever placed this order is still
0: on a DEA list
2: for. uh, for, (laughs) for I was just gonna say, and and these were repurposed (laughs) later for some agricultural programming uh, throughout the '90s.
1: So you'd be thawing a unit, you'd be excavating the one that had just been thawed, and you'd be screening into the one you just excavated. And when you finished the one that you were excavating, you'd slap your next your heat your thawing unit on the one ahead. And then move the, the back tent forward to the front and caterpillar your way around the site. And so yeah. that was our method for doing work in the winter. The amount of power that we were drawing at one point, we were drawing $40,000 a month in power because we were just throwing My heat geez. at the ground, right? Like it was just, it was like, it was almost like no problem.
2: It's like also, the scene have... in in, uh, in Christmas Vacation there. The emergency auxiliary power is getting switched on here and like uh, uh, right, right before the holidays. So.
1: Yeah. And I was trying to be like, I was really worried about the budget and everything. And at one point, one of the engineers said, look, this bridge is going to cost us a million dollars a meter. I'm sure it's like 10 times that now. But just do your work. Just make it go, make it go away, right? Like it's, which is like a horrifying. But okay, so we're going to throw heat at the ground. That's what we're going to do. And the, the so, listeners should
2: know that uh, most proponents do not tell you that these yeah. days. I, I can yeah. tell you that <laughs> I have. I, think- I don't think I've ever been involved in a conversation where it was like there's no t- there's no cap to the budget.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think I think that their real concern was the timeline, right? There was this yeah. real political timeline that the premier wanted. The premier had staked his reputation on this project and he wanted this to go ahead. So, so that's the technical way. That that was a whole the whole technical thing was a piece, but then what we were finding was also fantastic. So, the site itself had components, many different com- like it was occupied over long periods of time. Um, I suspect it was a part of a complex of sites that run all the way to the mouth of the Grand Lake system. The Gemseg River connects the St. John with Grand Lake, St. John the Wollistock, the St. John River, or Woolastook with Grand Lake. And so um, I think if we if you go up the coast up the shoreline towards Grand Lakes, you find material on the beach that's progressively more recent. The most recent stuff we were finding was middle woodlands, so around 1600, 1500 years. Ago. Yep. And then going back, we had a substantial early woodland component. And that early woodland component had some meadowwood kind of qualities to it, but there were I I think there was some sort of feeling, oh, it's a Meadowwood site. But I think it was it was a a Wolestokwe a site, but it had Meadowwood sort of features to some of it, but also a lot of local features. Um, into the terminal archaic, we had a transitional or terminal archaic material. Uh, we were actually able to radiocarbon date in that period around 3,200 years ago, which was a really ambiguous period up until this time. We had a large assemblage of Vinette one pottery, which is the first recognizable kind of pottery in the Northeast. And this was the first big assemblage of it from the Maritimes. We had a lot of, as I say, early woodland technology like bifacial scrapers and uh, side notch points that have that kind of meadow would look to it. Um, A lot of diversity of materials that people were using. Uh, And then we had um, this sort of archaic material. Now, as Gabe mentioned, uh, often archaic sites are stratified. In this case, what you had was this upper terrace that had been relatively uh, it, it and at one point had probably been closer to the river and it looked like the river had sort of moved past that berm. And so that low area was likely a previous channel, but it had been a long time since that had happened. And so you had not, you did not have that big buildup of alluvium. So the, the terrace material tended to be in a shallow deposit of 30, 40 centimeters. The private collections that had been collected in the 19th century by local people and early 20th century from the site had a the whole range of archaic groundstone implements. And we found some of that material too. But a, a lot of it was sort of in the from this plow zone or in contact with subsoil that was maybe 30 to 40 centimeters down, there was not this big, deep layer. So it was a lot more like a plumb up on the yeah. terrace. You had materials that were uh, scattered across it, but not deeply stratified. And so um, harder to interpret from that point of, st- point of view, but down by the water's edge, you had these deep layers. And we got down to, I think... Uh, uh, before we narrowed the footprint away from that area, we got down to about 1.2, 1.3 meters and we're continuing to find things. And then the footprint narrowed. So we we stopped working in that area. Uh, but we look, it looked like we were getting down into the early woodland layers down by the, the water's edge. So a lot of really interesting material. There was also historic material and some of that historic material included what looked like flaked glass. There were some glass beads. Um, there were clay like, tobacco pipes. There was a... Um, a 17th century clay tobacco pipe, which is really old, uh, yeah. Dutch clay clay tobacco pipe. So we had um, and we uh, we interpreted a certain amount of that as um the way artifacts that were from early contact period. And the other piece that we could supplement this with is a part of the interpretation center, Karen and we invited a lot of people from the community, and it turned out that Karen's approach was very different to interpretation center than an archeologist. We put up a big timeline and we'd have a lot of artifacts. She wanted to talk about being. Well, Greek. So she collected pictures of people living on the land, living at places like Gem doing traditional activities. And what happened was when uh, people from the community came in and visited that we had, we had a number of times when there'd be a group of people from different community, different, First Nations there, and one of them said, oh my gosh, that's my my Uncle Jim. And somebody hmm. standing next to them who they didn't know would say, that's my Uncle Jim. And these are people whose families had been torn apart by the settlement onto reserves, and they'd lost connection with each other. And here they were reforging that around these pictures. So the, the pictures became a whole separate component. It actually, Karen ended up creating a traveling exhibit called, a uh, portrait of a people that of all of these historic photos and that that traveled around and was in a number of venues. Um, But they were very powerful. And they added a layer of this sort of presence through the recent period and allowed us to ground some of those interpretations in sort of Wollastowic perspectives.
0: That's great. That's very powerful. So, um, so part of the reason this this archaeological at this site is important is is you kind of mentioned it it really closed a bunch of kind of key gaps in regional our regional understanding of of the area. Why why do you think people were living at Jemseg? Why was it so attractive for so long?
1: Well, I think that uh if you had put this highway through any number of places along the Jemseg <laughs> River, you would have found stuff. This is yeah. so the Grand Lake Meadows is an incredibly rich um it's called hardwood swamp, (laughs) but effectively it's alluvial deposits that have built up meters and meters deep from annual flooding. And it's along the river, the Wollastoke banks, but it spreads back into wetlands that um, are very, very rich um, biogeographically. Uh, For example, waterfowl, migratory waterfowl, uh, black ducks, other kinds of sort of duck and goose species, Funnel through this Grand Lake Meadows um, on their migration. It's on the major flight path for these the migration, and there's millions of them. That kind of, they are bird watchers who go in in the spring just to to, to sort of look at ducks, kind of thing. Um,
2: Gabe, Gabe and I are familiar with the the uh, <laughs> uh, the waterfowl hunting season as well in yeah. that region. Yeah, uh, we're uh, actually familiar with the, the day before the waterfowl hunting season. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, and of course, there's lots of. People who, during the flood, the other thing people do, and I did, I grew up not too far from the Grand Lake Meadows, just, just beyond Majerville. Um, We drive and look at the moose coming out on the highway because the highway is the high point and all the moose would come out and stand around on the highway. So it's full of things, not just birds, but also game. And of course, anadromous fish. So there's lots of striped bass that uh, are still congregating parts of the Grand Lake system. There would have been salmon and uh, sturgeon coming through, any number of eels, all sorts of those kinds of things, uh, alewives, lots of f- fish that could be um, collected. So very, very rich environment. The other thing that we found people were doing is harvesting butternut. So we found a, in a lot of features charred butternut, and um, and so uh, I think that the plant resources, I mean, being ac- having access to these wetlands and and scrub swamp really also allowed for um, access to a whole array of of plant materials. We had people looking at some of the traditional plant uses and we made a database of, of the potential food sources. And I think we had 180 edible plant species Hmm. that could be gotten within the gemseg, within the meadows. And of those, that the spreadsheet had you know classified them about you know ease of harvest, how much productivity there would be, and there was like thirty five or forty of them that had significant potential to provide food for people yeah. so um you know, I think so, that 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 probably was a long standing draw to people to the area you
2: you mentioned um recovering butternut was there much um uh, and and sort of the the productivity of the fauna in the region? did you recover much for um Uh, faunal remains at the site like so was there evidence of people cooking these foods other than butternut Um, so can I interrupt for a minute are you telling me it's a north site (laughs)
1: <laughs> i'm saying the norse learned how to harvest butternut from these people oh wow
2: there perfect yeah there yeah. we go so we have there yeah. you have it folks there is norse contact at jameson confirmed <laughs> yeah. today on the new brunswick archaeology podcast peter zosky wishes he had this kind of content <laughs>
1: yeah. um well so moving on from that um, so um i i do i think most of us would love to have the kind of preservation of faunal remains that are accessible to people like gabe working on the coast um be where you know uh, shells preserve or reduce the acidity of the soil at at places like Jamsey, saying we get the double whammy of the soil is so acidic that it destroys all of the bone material but it's not so acidic that it gets rid of microfauna so we have core hard tissue and soft tissue preservation. And so the only sort of uh, animal remains that would be preserved in that context would be calcined assemblage. So we had very fragmented calcined assemblages, but, um, but certainly not, it, the, the, this is not a site that produced a very easily studied large uh, Zoark sem- assemblage. And I think there's a real need for people who are working I think we have a need in the region for people who can really understand calcine assemblages and study them. They're very tricky; they're, they're very hard to identify the kinds of cre- creatures because the heat calcine is basically when they become burned, so that they, they uh, you're driving off all of the organic bits, but that also often drive destroys the landmarks that we we would use to identify animal bones. So problematic from that point of view. We did we did sort of. You know, find some evidence of that and but not as much as we would love to have. <laughs> yeah,
0: and I think preservation issues, at least in part, uh, lead into excavation eventually being halted. Um, at right. Gemsack, or At least preservation issues become part of the story. Um, right. would, so would you like to catch us up on on what? What how happened? did it end? Yeah, how did, <laughs> how it, did end? it end? <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: So we we were busily working away to excavate this. We had a moment where it we thought they might be putting a pier down in that low wet area near the closer to the water and this was a major concern because how are we going to excavate in water? We talked about bringing in a caisson or a cofferdam and digging in that inside the cofferdam. Like I mean the, the, oh, the things that we contemplated here were just absolutely over the top um but we we ended up not having the bridge there we were able to sort of span it and have the first span in the water and the river there had been actually dredged for coal um barges to pass from minto and chipman which has got some mining activity down down through, so it it we knew that the river bottom had been dredged out any number of times. So put in a pier in there. It's whatever's there is already destroyed. Um, so we were about ninety five percent done. So this was in April eleventh, and we were working five days a week. We had weekend crews coming on. We had at the peak one hundred and twenty people working on the site. As so I say, seventy to eighty percent of them, uh, Willis, will Um and. I get a call on a Saturday from one of the weekend crew members saying we found something um, and it has red ochre. And so I said, well, stop everybody from work. And of course, with a project like that, there's so much scrutiny, like stopping work is not something that is going to not be noticed. Right. So yeah. nonetheless, I said, okay, every, pull everybody off, send them home early um, you know, take some notes and, and we'll convene. I'm coming in. So I drove in at the time I was living way out of town. I drove into Fredericton and, and this was Colin Varley and he drove up from Gemseg and we met at Arc services and I had called uh, Chris to come in. We sort of met and, and he described what he found. They had been excavating a shallow basin and coating the basin, just the, just a, a thin layer coating this sort of, pit-like feature. It wasn't deep. It was only about uh, 15, 20 centimeters deep, sort of shaped like a base, but coating it was red ochre. There were no artifacts in the red ochre and no bones, but then I've just explained how there might not be bones because of preservation. In this part of the world, we're sitting on the Grand Lake system just just south of the Grand Lake system across the Grand Lake system is Cow Point and Cow Point is a site that was excavated in the 60s by Dave Sanger uh, with the National Museum of Man at the time. And that is a red ochre cemetery and it was late archaic and uh, so dated to sort of 4000 years ago and had produced some mortuary, you know, human remains in burial pits, but with red ochre. So we we had this commitment that we wouldn't excavate burial sites. Now, the what we had was a little bit different, looked a little different. And immediately people were saying, well, how do we know this isn't historic? You know, people use red ochre to paint barns. How do we know that this is archaeological? There's no artifacts in there, even though we're in the middle of an archaeological site. Um, And we felt like we needed to try and understand this as best we could. But at the same time, we also needed to make the assumption that it could be a mortuary site. So we called MACA. We called the ministers that were all involved in that. There were a number of them. And we informed everybody that we had found something and we weren't sure what it was. So the, the Monday, so Monday came around and the, the day after we had sort of done all that calling and I said to everybody, come to the site, but we'll work in the labs and we'll, you know, we'll do other things. We won't go down and excavate, but I think we should have a presence on the site. And <laughs> within about a half an hour of us getting there, something like 30 media outlets roll up, like all the media, like news, cam- TV cameras, radio, like it's all there. And I said, uh, people are saying, we hear there's something that was found. You know, what can you tell us? And I said, well, we, we're going to run some tests. So I had taken a little, there's a little fleck of charcoal from the top of it, just above the red ochre. I'd sent that off to Beta Analytic to do radiocarbon dating. Uh, We had taken some samples in and around that to try and send to, we sent it to the agricultural, um, the the New Brunswick uh, Agricultural Center, whatever that's called, the There's a sort of research station where they were going to do- A research place? Yeah. They were going to do potassium and nitrogen analysis on the soil to see if maybe we could see something that could identify some characteristics that might indicate bone had been there. I mean, we were really grasping for soil. We needed some evidence because we're going to have to make a call on this. What is it? And we talked to people who had excavated- Red ochre cemeteries to find out what they looked like and whether this was in the range and it was not in the, it was not in the average, but it wasn't outside of the range of possibility for our The, and so, so I have some of that information, but we've got these other test results out there. So I go up and I'd say to them, well, we found something that we're, we're trying to figure out what it is. We don't know at this point. And the, the news people pay the radio or whatever, the media people said, well, when will you know? And I said, well, we'll probably get the first test back on Thursday. And uh, then the other ones might take a little longer, but this is going to be a work in progress. So if happy, everybody leaves, they go away. And I think, ah, we dodged that. And then Thursday comes and they all come back. But before they (laughs) do, as as they leave on the Monday, um, uh, some people come forward who I hadn't worked with much before. And they are the spin doctors. And they say... You've just given your last interview. <laughs> we will be taking it from here. You're not to talk to anybody. So I'm thinking, fine, I don't want to do those interviews. I'm not enjoying the media stuff. This, this That part of it kind of sucks, frankly. I'm happy just to do my work. So um, Thursday rolls around and I suddenly realize I've set myself up for a real problem. I've told the media that we'll have results back. I've been told I can't communicate those results and I'm not sure if that includes their expectation that I wouldn't communicate it to my crew, because if I tell my crew the results, they're going to tell the media, like I can't enforce that on people at this stage, or at least they're going to tell their relatives who will tell the media. And so, but I have also made a personal commitment to tell people what's going on, not, not the media, but within the crew that they need to trust me that I'll share information. I just suddenly I'm like, oh my God, did I ever set up a nightmare here? (laughs) And sure enough, this all plays out with us getting back some results. And I didn't know what those results were. I just sent two crew members to go get the material from the Agricultural Center. I didn't wanna know what they were because I felt like once I know what those are, I have to disclose them to my crew So take your time driving back, boys. (laughs) I'm going to try and get permission to disclose this. So I'm on the phone talking to Chris Turnbull and then I get a call. So it just so happens one of the people I sent to get these is my, my uh, partner at the time, Chris Blair. And so he calls me up and he says, we've uh, had somebody chasing us down from Fredericton and they've told us to pull over. (laughs) And I said, what do they want? And he said, they want the samples. And I said, they're coming back from getting the results and I said well what do you do you know what the results are he said yeah and I said well don't tell me on the phone come here and talk to the crew directly um and give them the samples I guess like but don't tell them you know the results because they'll probably I don't know what they'll do so so he continues on his way and that gives me this timeline he's got a half an hour before he gets here to tell the crew that I've got to get permission and it was a real fight I mean Chris Turnbull was doing that fight he was going he goes to one minister and then he goes to another and he's slowly moving up the food chain trying to get permission for me to tell the crew what these results are and and I think we made a few enemies doing that I think that was a a tough position to take, I felt a little bit like, uh, you know, I was saying, I'm honestly, I'm on contract here. I have a lot more to lose from keeping this information secret than I have to gain from uh, keeping it secret. So I'm going to be telling people and I can do it with permission or I can do it without permission. It's your call. Um, So it's kind of playing out like that. And I could see the faces of the crew that they were really, The faith that they had in the process that we had outlined was not deep and I thought there's far too much for archaeology to lose here at this point like this is where we set up another St. Anne's Point right so we Chris and I stuck to our our guns and eventually he came called me back he said okay you have permission so I call Chris in and he comes into the (laughs) into the uh the the uh, lab where everybody's all crowded in and we're all waiting to hear and I said okay Chris you have the results can you tell us did they were able you know what is the results of these tests and he takes a deep breath and he says inconclusive (laughs) (laughs) good to know good to know I staked my entire career on that (laughs) And of course they were. I mean, it, this has been an agricultural place, so potassium and nitrogen. I mean, you know, if I I don't know what we were all expecting, but anyway, we didn't get an answer out of that. And it was just this high stakes thing. And at that point, um, the the other piece of information that did come in from beta was the that the that charcoal that was just above the ochre data to 2880 plus or minus 60 BP. So that's not the same age as Cow Point, but it's definitely pre-contact. And we definitely know that people, who Meadowood, people did use red ochre in ceremonial ways and in mortuary contexts. And so at some point, and, and I have to say, Chris Turnbull also let me make the call. And so the call that I made was, we can't say this is um, Red Ochre Cemetery or Red Ochre burial. We can't say it is, but we can't say it isn't. And given the premier's commitment we have to assume it might be, it is. So we have to change the highway. And so that's, I had to go in and explain that to DOT. And they were really, they were like, yep, that's the right call. So, um, so we went back and, and I remember meeting with the DOT engineers looking out over the site. And so we had this sort of pathway that went down to the river that the high, the road was supposed to go on. But if you just looked over here about 4% deviation, there was somebody who had built a marina decades earlier, and they had used bulldozers to just gouge it all out. Like it was, they'd made a slipway, any archeological material that was there, they dug it up. So it's already been removed. And so in talking with um, indigenous leadership and with MACA and with everybody involved, it was agreed that there's your solution. We can go through there. It's already been pre-excavated, I don't know why that didn't occur to people at the beginning. I guess they wanted a nice straight approach. But now if you're driving from Moncton towards Fredericton, you come to this place where you're approaching the river and there's a turn. You know what that is.
0: (laughs) The last time an engineer in the province of New Brunswick said money's no problem.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there was a limit, but I think they were watching what we were spending. And it wasn't they I am certain they did have a limit. I think we were just. Our idea of what, I mean, I had my, the previous project I'd run before this was my, was a a master's level field project with summer students that were largely paid for by seed programs. So, you know, I was like, oh, $1,000, that's a lot of money, you know? And so that we were just dealing with different scales of a lot of money. Like their idea of a lot of money was different from my idea. I'm sure we could have hit that cap. I think, I think my suggestion of a cofferdam hit the cap. Like, I think when I said that, they're like, no, no, we're not. We're not going to do that. No.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so we talked about the archeology, um, and, and, uh, you know, what's been found and, and kind of, I uh, we, we, in your, in our pre discussion before we came on, uh, you said you, you don't like this question. I'm going to ask it anyway. Cause, uh, <laughs> cause I think the listener wants to know, uh, is there a coolest artifact or feature at the site? Is there something that like particularly memorable? Um, uh, you know, I mean, there is some like really like you, you talked about a few things like the, the bifacial scrapers um, and in particular, some of the uh, the stone tool materials that those are made on. Like, yeah. There's one in particular. It's like this kind of iridescent, almost pink color of minus Basin cherts uh, that, uh, that kind of sticks in my mind. And I, I like I can kind of picture it right now. Um, yeah. but, uh, but is there something that you can think of in particular that sort of struck you?
1: Well, I, I must say that uh, things like the bifacial scrapers are great because there's a large number of them, right? Like this is the piece that I think was really great in terms of lithic analysis is, you know, oftentimes we're confronted with an assemblage where well, you get three projectile points and four scrapers, and you've got to make some conclusion. I mean, we had hundreds of these thousands of some categories of things. So I think that the, the richness of material was a real um helpful from an archaeological point of view. Obviously, this is also something that has, you know, I think there's complex feelings that many indigenous folk have about the site. And, and I think many of the people who worked there became quite inspired. Some of them went on and have become archaeologists. Um, many uh Willistogwick have have really felt that that was a way of accessing their past. So I think that the, this is a, would be a really interesting question to get everybody together and ask them, because I think you'd get a whole bunch of different answers to that. I I actually think, if I think about it, there are some classes of artifacts that I think are really interesting. And I still wonder about like, obviously gra- a groundstone rod is a cool thing to find. Like that was really cool to find that in situ. It was associated with a big asymmetrical biface that, had a very archaic look to it so that might mean that it's more middle archaic than than early archaic i think um there was this there were a bunch of these slate objects that were tabular slate pieces that had worked beveled beveled edges and i've never really figured out what those were. Like I, I've not seen yeah. really good examples of those elsewhere. They look to be kind of like slate knives, but they weren't they were quite it could have been slate working. I thought they might be slate debitage or something. Like they might yeah. be or like a braiders or something. Eh? Slate working tools. Yeah. i there though that I think is really interesting. Obviously the Vinette one, I mean, to get 90 some pieces of venet one um is is pretty, pretty amazing. I think because I think all of those things are things that allowed us to sort of challenge our thinking and and understand. I think at the time, uh, New Brunswick archaeology was still a lot of the big habitation sites that we had had, had worked on, places like Fulton Island Oxbow, had produced um, material that, that was... Um, didn't lend itself easily to sort of typological frameworks. And there was this sort of uh, almost a kind of inferiority complex. I mean, Augustine Mound is another whole category of site, but many sites, you know, we, people were still very much going to, well, what does it say in, in, you know, our projectile points of New York state or Southern New England, like this idea that we had to look elsewhere to understand our archeological record and that we had sort of, not as many of those kinds of things. So to so to see this kind of uh, place where you know you realize that there are probably many of those things in many sites, but we just haven't found them yet. I mean that I think really asserted a sort of a connection of of to that land um, and to the depth of history. Like this went back going back thousands and thousands of years in this place. I think that. So I think that's not really an artifact or a feature, but it really is. I think what I'm saying, I guess the aggregate of those things is what really is cool to me. I've never been a big fan of the fine spot individual artifact in the sense that I don't think it really helps us to understand much except presence absence. And this really was a chance to explore a real connection of people to that place, Um so, yeah, and I think some of the features were pretty good. Cool. Like we had one, it was in unit G36. I don't know why I can't remember what I have to do this week for, you know, getting dressed and this sort of stuff. But yet I still remember that, you know, unit <laughs> G36 produced feature 29, which had a radiocarbon date of of 2960 plus or minus 120 BP, which uh, when you calibrate it, puts it nice and firmly in the sort of uh, around 3200 years ago and is before the radiocarbon plateau which means that you have some confidence that it actually dates to that and it was full of butternut and it was just a little hearth where somebody had had cooked a meal and had been doing something with butternut and it's pretty cool
0: That's, that's excellent yeah, so, in addition to the Viking feature you just described uh, <laughs> <laughs> but Vanessa but no, so, uh, I think, um this is you know, obviously you know one of the important sites in new brunswick, and and we really appreciate that you came on to to talk with us about it. but I, I thought we maybe would wrap up here, just, you know, we're almost thirty years out. Um, what do you think the legacy of the GEMSEG project is? Um, I think it remains one of the largest mitigative uh, excavations ever undertaken in the province. Um, probably the biggest, I think it's probably the biggest and most successful collaborative archaeology project in the province. Um, so we're just sort of curious what you what you think the legacy is at, at this stage.
1: Yeah, I really struggle with that. I think at the time when I started that project, I was 29. I turned 30 during the project. Um, and I was very, I was naive, I'm sure. Um, I had this idea that we would be working through archaeology to build sort of cap- capacity for archaeology broadly, that there would be increasing public engagement, that willis would be more and more involved and would control, you know, archaeological decision making more and more, that we were on a pathway. And I think now, um, I feel like there's been so many ways in which those gains have not, we've not capitalized on them. There's been so many opportunities lost. Um, and I, I think that we, I think that we need to um, kind of try and reconnect with some of those uh, ways. And I I think that it's easy for archaeologists to say, oh, we need to do this. I think we need to try and hold governments to account to make this kind of thing possible, to commit to finding ways. I mean, we had a lot of jokes about bridge building, I have to say, and that and peer (laughs) pressure. Those were our big jokes. (laughs) But, you know, I do think that that without a framework that sort of permeates a sort of public decision making, you know, I don't think it's easy to kind of shift people towards what we ought to be doing, which I think is articulated in Truth and Reconciliation and the principles of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People around um, really recognizing indigenous decision making and engagement around these kinds of places and around these kinds of events um but I do think that we have I, th- I think that there are now many people who have had the experience of places like gemse and who have the will to keep pushing for this I think it is something I didn't I guess I didn't realize how much we'd have to fight for this yeah I just thought that it was natural that we would move in this direction. And I think we do need to fight for this. And I think for, and when I say this, I mean, uh, sort of that, that notion of how we can approach archeology span in a more, um, engaged way that, that is mindful of the sort of the public value that should be being built, the sort of civic engagement. And, and then of course the, uh, indigenous decision-making and control and access and all of those pieces that um you know i think i think that there's been a way in which we need to re sort of uh, because many indigenous people are fighting for those things but we're not using these kinds of systems and structures to help with those those fights right so i think i guess in terms of a legacy i wish that there was more of a legacy and particularly in that kind of way um and i for the longest time, I think I felt like there were a lot of um, sort of powers that be that felt that we went too far, right? That that we needed to kind of be dialed back a bit. And I think um, I, you know, that that potentially some of the current problems may be a legacy as well, that that there was sort of a, a knee jerk pulling back from collaboration as being possibly scary, because it does involve some sort of seeding of control that maybe was Was too much. I'm not sure. I know that sounds very cynical. I'd love to say, "Oh, I think this wonderful legacy," but I I think it's it's a difficult legacy. Um, And I think, in some ways, many of the people who were involved in archaeology are now in a position where they have to advocate for archaeology and for their involvement in it against forces that are, you know, empowered by government control and and i think yeah like yeah
2: archaeology got political and archaeologists i don't think have gotten political enough basically yeah.
1: yeah yeah and i and i do think that for the people who worked on the project from communities they don't have that choice of not being political they can't just go and do the work they get so i think that's a piece that i think is uh something that we all should be continuing to work on so um you know, I mean, we had the 25th anniversary come and I, and I thought, oh, you know, it'd be really great. I always had in the back of my mind, so there were three volumes, two volumes, and I always had the, in the back of my mind a third volume. So the first volume, and we wanted to make the point that the archeology span was important, but that the most important part was that sort of Willis the Quay connection to the place. And, and so the first volume is actually a series of stories that Karen Pearlie collected from elders uh, around... Jem and around their life ways. And so that's sort of a spoken history kind of volume. And then the second volume is the archaeology, which we wanted to have sort of subordinated to that first view. And then I had the thought that there could be a third volume, which is um, people giving their experiences of participating and, and trying to validate the whole range of experiences. We did that in the archaeological volume in a sense, because we very consciously wanted to integrate as many voices as we could in the production of the volume. We used, we tried to introduce uh holistic way terms and terminology as much as we could and really tried to kind of de-emphasize the sort of traditional voice of authority that, archeological experts often bring to the table. We wanted to really break that down a bit. Um, So I I think there could be a third volume that would go back to the people who participated and really do this kind of reflection because this is my reaction, but there were many people who were involved in this in many different capacities. It'd be really interesting to, to hear from them about not only the legacy, but what can we do now at this point to keep things moving forward.
0: Well, thanks very much, Sue. I think that we've uh, we're getting close to a half-empty bottle of Cuvassier here, and so we we wanted to thank you for uh, for coming on to talk about Gemseg. We really appreciate it. Um, and we are going to put in the show notes some of those citations that you mentioned. And we really appreciate you coming on and and sharing your experience with our listeners.
2: Yeah, thank you, <laughs> thank, you Sue.
1: Thank and... you, thank you for, for giving me a chance to talk about it. It's a it's a nice thing to reflect on. There were a lot of lovely parts of it, so it's good. Yep. Thank you. And-
2: yeah, yeah, and thank you for being uh, the the first great site uh, oh, uh, on well, the NV archaeology project or NV archaeology podcast. So, um, thank you Sue and uh, uh, we'll have you on again here uh, sometime, you know, to con- maybe continue the conversation and and uh, um, have a have a great afternoon.
1: All right, thank you.
2: Thanks Sue. Okay, bye. So, Ken, along
0: with our uh, our new great sites program we're gonna have great sites
2: c-i-t-e-s yeah yeah great sites great citations however we want to call it and and the and the listener will be treated to um our first uh uh first dappling of new music in a little while and so there's going to be some different theme music with the great sites not not only are we uh, are we digging up some great citations we are um uh providing you a new sonic journey uh uh, uh compliments of Justin Hankey. That's um, right. And uh and uh and I'll I'll, I'll reach out to Shane too, uh, Shane Dahl who's provided music for our uh, Hakuna Matata segment and see if uh he, he has any suggestions for any other little um uh, uh, little blurbs that we can include.
0: That's right. I but since we've been humming along, you know, at 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 about, I think I haven't checked with our um our media gurus yet, but I think we're at ninety nine point four percent accuracy this season.
1: <laughs> yeah,
2: we we have not we haven't had a big slip up actually yet. So.
0: No, uh, no. The I had a rather big slip up on the CBC the other day where I confused the Saxby Gale and uh, the Groundhog's Day storm. But what's a hundred years among friends? You know e- exactly, exactly. They were yep. both
2: they were both on the coast, and yes. uh, I think that's the message. So
0: yeah, and they were both storms. <laughs> yeah, so, I you mean could e-
2: you could email them the music and just say we play this when we screw up. So we, yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly. And so what we're gonna do in this uh, in this great citations uh, section is we're going to just list um, in the show notes as well, as we're going to do it right now, some uh, places you can go to find information about the site we've just discussed on the show.
2: And so um, we're going
0: to start off this week with uh, Sue Blair's uh, Gemsig Archaeological Site article. Available online in the Canadian Encyclopedia. And uh, you could either Google GEMSEG Archaeological Site, uh, Canadian Encyclopedia, or we will put the link to that in the show notes. And it's a nice general
2: overview of the work at
0: GEMSEG and what they found.
2: Yeah. And uh, the next is the two-volume set, A uh, GEMSEG. So there's volume one, which is edited by Karen Purley. Um, and that one is spoken uh, Spoken Histories and... I didn't write down the full title here for myself. Um, oh, and
0: actually I didn't write it down either, but it's, um, while, while Ken's looking that up, I'll, I'll just to tell the listener, that's, um, Sue, I think mentioned this in the episode that there's two volumes. One are the archaeological results. Uh, one volume is archaeological results. And then the other volume is uh, collections of stories from elders about uh Yeah.
2: Yeah. So the, so volume one, important stories and spoken histories is edited by Karen Purley and Sue. Uh, Susan Blair, and that's New Brunswick Manuscripts and Archaeology 34E, um, which is the E means English, um, and then the second volume is archaeological results. And so um, the idea, as Sue was saying, was to highlight basically Blasticoid connections to places and around Gemseg. So there's actually some really great stories about um, people talking about their grandparents, you know, fishing or fiddlehead fiddleheading in the in the region, talking about um, it was like mostly based on fisheries and and uh, kind of like a resource uh, uh, collection, um, environmental like connection to the environment and the area around there. Um, and then, yeah, and then the second volume is um, uh, archeological results. Uh, and it, basically it is it works out to being kind of a culture history uh, of what was found at GEMSEG. And and so it extends essentially from the Paleo-Indian period um, up until uh, uh, post-contact. Um, and there is, a chapter on the uh, feature analysis, ceramics, lithic technology, um, and it's an edited volume. It was edited by Sue. She authored a couple of the uh, chapters, um, but there are a number of different um, contributions. So Karen Purley actually has a chapter in there called Teaching House, the Agemseg Interpretive Center, which talks about um, the interpretive center that uh, Sue mentioned. David Black has an article on the stone materials from the site, uh, Vinnie Bourgeois or Vincent Bourgeois, some, uh, wrote an article on ceramic artifacts, Steve Monckton on food and subsistence, Francis Stewart on um, zoarchaeological materials, uh, uh, Chris Blair on the post contact stuff with Pam Dickinson. And, and so, this, the second volume, is what we would traditionally call basically a site monograph, right? And so, this is um, uh, a huge data set is presented alongside uh, uh, sort of broad-scale interpretations. And that one is also a manuscript in New Brunswick Archaeology, and that one is 36E. And so what's great about the both the volumes of the GemSeg is that both of them are actually available as PDFs from the New Brunswick uh, Archaeological Services website. And so we will put a link in the show notes directly to those PDFs.
0: That's right. And then finally, we've got uh, Sue Blair's 2010 article, Missing the Boat in Lithic Procurement, Watercraft and the Bulk Procurement of Tones... Toolstone on the Maritime Peninsula, Journal of Anthropological Archaeology, volume 29, pages 33 through 46. And we will put the DOI to that in the show notes. Unfortunately, um, it's going to be paywalled, so uh, it can be a, a little bit tricky to find. But um, essentially what that article is about is it's about thinking about the way um, we understand hunter-gatherers procuring toolstone and... Um, is really really important because it's one of the many ways that we are that archaeologists try to think about the ranges that that um, hunter gatherers are traveling over because it's one of the the markers that's left in the archaeological record that preserves pretty well. Yeah. Um, and if you believe in rocks and you think you can tell where they're <laughs> from, which I'm deeply skeptical of, um, you you also want to consider um, how they might have been transported by canoes, not just either through exchange or through walking, but uh, and so. What yeah. Sue does here is think about models that involve canoe use, and that's particularly important because the Lustig, um, of course, is a major canoe route.
2: Yeah, yeah, and 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 she, one of the things she presents is that a lot of the models that Gabe said that we understand how people were moving land, around the landscape, and as a result, moving rocks around, was that it was tied to sort of embedded procurement by foot, that people were kind of moving around the landscape in kind of seasonal rounds, um, and that having bulk procurement and putting essentially rocks into your canoe and boating away actually can completely changes the archeological signature of what we see. And so um, if you see a whole bunch of one type of rock at a particular site, that may actually just be the fact that somebody visited a quarry, um, threw a whole bunch of rocks into their canoe and brought them all in kind of one event rather than um, one group going back to that place every year uh, on sort of successive. Um, uh, trips, basically. And so it kind of it upends some of what the the theoretical premise for understanding lithic procurement are are based on.
0: Absolutely. And so we uh, we recommend that you check out all those uh, those articles. Well, Ken, th- I'm looking at about a half-finished bottle of Cognacier.
2: Yeah, for the second time.
0: Yeah, I, it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> the uh, well, uh, <laughs> listener, we don't always. Uh,
2: <laughs>
0: I just open the drawer here in my office and I pick out the bottles that are clanking around and uh, exactly, exactly, and, and read just
2: for it, kind of putting mm-hmm. your finger around the inside and you know, a little little taste test, to see. See which one's uh, the freshest, you know.
0: That's right. Yeah, I mean, the, the it was sort of warm in my office uh, for the interview, and so so we edited out the blender sound of me making a frozen cavazier. <laughs> but uh, but now I've switched to uh, to just an ordinary cavazier,
2: and um, I think it's that time, Ken. I think it is that time. So thank you, listener. We'll we'll talk to you in a fortnight, and we will see you in person uh, in just over two weeks from today.
0: That's right. We're um, we're not just going to be alive and well. We're going to be live and well.
2: Yeah, but uh, yeah, well, we're so, certainly
0: going to be live. We. I yeah. mean, I never <laughs> say knock on wood, I guess, but the, we. we <laughs> odds are, we're going to be alive. And, yeah. Um, exactly. I'll keep yeah. taking my B12
2: to, so that I'm in I'm I'm in, in tip top shape.
0: Exactly. The listener can't actually see how pale Ken is. It's in Lethbridge, He hasn't had sunlight in what is it six weeks now?
2: Actually, no. So we we are we have an abundance of sunlight here. So that's oh. one thing one advantage to Southern Alberta is it's the sunniest place in north america apparently
0: no kidding yeah and and ken's ken's hair is, is blowing like canola plants in the uh in yep. the wind i can see horses trampling by ken's actually converted his office chair to look like a saddle yeah he's uh yep. he's settled right in
2: quite literally ran over tumbleweed in my driveway this morning so
0: oh what a world <laughs> what a world well ken we'll uh we'll talk to you soon and uh we'll look forward to talking to you listener and to uh hopefully seeing you yep see you later listener take care bye